<coughs> I've kind of left aside the title that we've been given for uh, this morning on chapter 10. But I'm going to ask the question, who is acceptable to God? On what basis is anyone able to enter into and enjoy a relationship with God? And have the confidence in the hope of being part of his eternal and glorious plan that he has promised for his people. It's a lesson that Peter has to learn. Being acceptable to God should be without doubt the greatest concern for everyone. Finding and fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, to glorify your creator, to know him intimately, and to enjoy him eternally, needs to be the highest priority in our lives. Whilst at the same time recognizing that the default position of man is outside. Outside of God's favor, unholy, unclean, and unfit for his presence. Fit only for the fire. In Job, he himself exclaims, Man is born of a woman, is a few days and full of trouble. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Who then is acceptable to God? How can anyone become clean? Well, chapters 10 and 11 are dedicated to answering that very question. And we can cheat a bit here and skip straight to the answer by looking at verses 34 and 35. I should be reading... These quotes from the ESV version, so bear with me if it differs from the NIV a little. Truly, says Peter, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. But what appears to be a straightforward answer not only proves difficult to get one's head around, But it also is a difficult one to accept. Difficult for many Jews, but also for many Gentiles too. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So we see the struggle to accept this answer. See, the issue rears its head again and again. We see later in Acts chapter 15, where this particular encounter with Cornelius is cited to defend this very point. We also see this issue reappear in the the epistles, in which Peter himself is rebuked for forgetting this very point. And it continues beyond the New Testament and into the history of the church up until this very day and even into our own individual lives. Who and what makes someone acceptable to God? See, do our lives reflect which side of the struggle that we have believed and accepted? Is the fear of God enough? For us, I believe part of Peter's answer, that God calls people from all nations hardly makes for headline news. Because we get it, don't we? The fact that we are here together, 
is evidence that we understand that anyone can be right with God. Well, I might be wrong, but I believe that no one here is worried about their salvation because they're not Jewish. But what is revealed in chapter 10 has the greatest relevancy to us here this morning. See, the answer can bring assurance for the believer, hope for the sinner, and bring a greater devotion and worship to God. Who is acceptable to God? On what basis is anyone able to enter and enjoy a relationship with him? To illustrate the truth that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, God arranges a meeting between Peter and Cornelius, a Jew and a Gentile. So up until now in Acts, we've been tracking the spread of the gospel, as it was foretold back in chapter 1, verse 8, starting in the city of the Jews, Jerusalem, then to the country of the Jews, Judea, then to the mixed-raced region of Sumeria, and then we get a taster of the reach of the gospel to the Gentile ends of the world, back in chapter 8. You know, that encounter with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but now this international relevancy of the gospel is explicitly affirmed. And in doing so, teach us, uh, teaches us about the nature of God and of salvation. See, Peter, that very Jewish Jew, was already being stretched by the truth of the gospel. He was doing something new by st staying with Simon the Tanner. You know, who Andrew introduced to us last week from chapter 9. See, a chap handling dead animals was pretty much unclean all the time. Cut off from the worship of God and infectious to others who came into contact with him, making them unclean too. And yet, there is Peter staying in his house. <coughs> this, in itself, was groundbreaking. And I bet a little bit uncomfortable to live out until one got used to it. Yet now God wants to stretch Peter once again, to exercise his faith and to deepen his knowledge of the gospel. Enter Cornelius. See, this time, Peter, who, who really wanted to do what is right before God, would be entering a house in which it was considered unlawful. As Peter himself said, so in verse 28. But the lesson that teaches who is acceptable to God is to be learned not from Peter visiting any old Gentile home, but specifically Cornelius. Therefore, what we're told about Cornelius is critical to understand what Peter learns and then declares in 34 and verse 35. So at the beginning of the chapter, we are told that Cornelius is a centurion. So he's well off and well uh, respected. And though this man was from a different nation and had bragging rights amongst his fellow Roman citizens, we're told that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. 
it is clear that he was more than familiar with the God of the Jews. And that this God stood over and above the claims and veneration of many gods that were worshipped in the Roman Empire. Cornelius had devoted himself to the one true God, as did all his household. They had come to fear God. See, they knew this God had the authority to give and to take life, to judge and to redeem. They knew that this God was real and was rightly to be feared. See, their fear of God and submission to him had produced in them a life of devotion and holiness, giving to those in need and prayerfulness. However, there is no mention that they were proselytes. That is, they weren't true converts to Judaism. See, despite being a battle-hard centurion, earning his stripes through the shedding of blood in the battlefield, the shedding of blood in circumcision was a step too far. Circumcision was that outward sign of belonging to the covenant people of God, a people who were heirs of all the wonderful promises. As a Gentile, there was no way he could access God's temple, where God was understood to manifest his presence. In fact, if Gentiles were to go further into the temple area from the outside courts, the Jewish authorities could carry out the death penalty, even on Roman citizens, such as our friend Cornelius. See, this crime is what Paul is charged later on in Acts 21, in which he brings Greeks into the temple, and by doing so, defiled or made unclean the holy place. Cornelius was very much an outsider, yet, Yet it is clear in verses 1 to 8 that Cornelius had a genuine relationship with God. That he had already been accepted by God. His life, his life wasn't an attempt to copy the, the practice of the Jews. It wasn't a fake life that he lived. He wasn't simply a do-gooder. Someone only who appears to be good. See, the authenticity of that relationship between Cornelius and the Lord and his place as an outsider is crucial to understand what it means to be acceptable to God. Well, God visits Cornelius through an angel in a vision. And in this vision, the angel declares that his prayers and arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Ascending as a memorial before God is sacrificial language. The angel is saying that the works that he had done out of his reverence and fear of God was a pleasing sacrifice. It's almost priestly, something that only a, a priest could do. Without doubt, Cornelius' relationship, his acceptability before God, was genuine and was without need of circumcision, and was without defiling the holy place where God resides. It is this God-fearing man that Peter needs to meet. It is through an encounter with Cornelius that, that Peter's understanding and traditions will be challenged and transformed. 
And so the angel instructs them to send men to Joppa to bring Peter to their home, giving instructions on where to find him. Yet before they deliver the invitation, Peter needs some preparation. So we are told that a hungry Peter fell into a trance. Well, I'm not sure whether his, his hunger influenced what he saw, but nevertheless, God had something to tell him. In this trance, Peter sees a great sheet descending from heaven, let down by the four corners upon the earth. And it's full of all kinds of four-legged animals, birds and reptiles, both clean and unclean. And then a voice says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. (coughs) Now, Peter doesn't like this at all. And exclaims, By no means, Lord! For I have never eaten anything this co- um, that is uncommon or unclean. See, by doing so, uh, but doing as the Lord has commanded Peter, he would become ritually unclean. That is, he would become unfit for God's presence, just like a Gentile. He would become unacceptable to God, who is holy and pure. For in Leviticus, and particularly chapter 11, God gives the Jews instructions about what is required to keep clean and to distinguish themselves from other nations as people holy and consecrated to God. The problem is that God is so holy and so pure that to come before him in an impure state results in death. Isaiah exclaimed this when he saw the throne room of God. Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Chapter 11 in Leviticus is about what foods could be eaten and what were not to be eaten, what was clean and what was unclean. See, although many have tried to actually explain and and categorize the reason for why God deemed some animals clean and some unclean are are not wholly convincing to me. But what is clear, though, and that should be clearly understood, and particularly from our passage today, is that God determines what is clean and unclean. He underlines this in his response to Peter. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. God and God alone has the right to define what is clean and to make it clean. Note how the text says, what God has made clean. God has made the food issue obsolete by declaring and making it clean. Because he has the power and the authority to do so. Consider where the animals have come from and where they return to. They have come from heaven and then they return to heaven, the place where nothing unclean comes from or from which nothing unclean can enter. So purity, cleanness, the state in which one can enter into the presence and worship of God without being consumed by his holiness is no longer to be considered as determined by religious practice. It is out of our hands, but firmly in God's. This point is not yet grasped by Peter. 
and in fear of being unclean, cries out and refuses. He has never done it before, and he was not going to start now. But the Lord's response in verse 15 was confusing to him. What God has made clean, do not call unclean or or common. Verse 17 describes Peter as inwardly perplexed. But as the invitation from Cornelius is uh, delivered, it appears that the penny has dropped. See, Peter explains a little later on in verse 28 that he made a connection, that connection between the unclean food in his vision and unclean people. It says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why have you sent for me? He realized it was safe to go. He would not become unclean because now no person that God says is unclean is unclean. The strict food laws had had taught the people of God about the holiness and purity of the Lord. But now it is used to highlight the sovereign grace of God that is actually needed to make fit that which was once unfit for God's presence. And so Peter's education continues. He is told to meet three men who are looking for him. And although God has told him that visiting a Gentile is absolutely fine, he still doesn't know why he is to meet them. So when he um, does, he asks in verse 21, what is the reason for your coming? So they tell him. And as they explain the reason for the invite, they give a little more information about the purpose of Peter's visit. At the end of verse 22, Peter's invitation is to hear what he has to say. So not only is Peter Peter learning a critical lesson, but the devout Cornelius and his household need to hear something new too. So the story moves on in verse 23. Peter gets to Joppa and finds himself in Cornelius' home, full of friends and family. And at the first sight, Cornelius fall down, falls down to worship Peter. And with such an experience that Cornelius has had so far, what with the vision and all that, it is no wonder that he considered Peter as someone special. Yet Peter knows his position. Despite his high role in the kingdom work of Jesus, he knew all too well his weaknesses as a man and of the grace Jesus had shown to him. Get on your feet, he says. I'm just a man. Peter asks again why he was sent for. And Cornelius answers in verses 30 to 33. The details included in here are really important to note. He recounts to Peter that a man in bright clothing stood before him. I'm sure to Peter that having been amongst the few who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, seeing the appearance of Jesus' face change and his clothes become bright, would know that this description in verse 30 was evidence to the authenticity of a divine message. Cornelius goes on to say what this messenger from God said about him. 
that his prayer had been heard and that his arms had been remembered before God. Peter learns, as we've learned earlier, that Cornelius had been accepted by God, that his sacrificial life that came from a right fear of God was known by God, and therefore he was not regarded by God as unclean. But Cornelius needed to hear what Peter had to say. At the end of verse 33, Now therefore, having told you what has happened before, we are all here, in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius was the head of his household. Now he needed to be introduced to the head of the household of God. See, the book of Hebrews says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Cornelius had up to now been following a servant's message. Well, imagine a luxurious dinner, <coughs> a luxurious dinner party, where the host um, has instructed his servants to, to not allow anyone in who hasn't been properly dressed for such an occasion. For people had to know the expected standards. It wasn't a free-for-all. You couldn't come in wearing your own clothes. Cornelius is like a guest without the proper clothes. Turning up at the door only to meet one of the servants who politely turns him away. And as he turns away and begins to walk down the driveway, the host sees him and calls to him. The host knows him and says to him, I have a spare suit that you can have. Put it on and come in and join us. In verses 36 to 43, Cornelius is introduced to the head of the household of God, Jesus Christ. So having arrived at the point after Peter having taken all this on board and declaring that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He goes on to speak about the ministry and life of Jesus. Some think that Cornelius, Cornelius apparently had known already, according to verse 37. He knew of the host of the party. He also knew he didn't wear the right clothes. He didn't belong. Peter speaks of this ministry of Jesus from a very Jewish angle. In verse 36, as for the word or the message that he sent to Israel. God's first point of call, or port of call, was to the Jews. And in verse 39, Peter emphasizes that he was witness to all that Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The context of Jesus' ministry was initially to the Jews. We all need to remember that Jesus is to be understood as being a Jew. It is through the Jews that the promises of God are fulfilled. He is the Jewish Messiah. The Jews were God's people and had the words of God given to them. It was perhaps the Jewishness of Jesus and his earthly ministry 
that Cornelius was aware of, and that led him to assume that his place was to follow the Jewish faith from the fringes. And yet, through Jesus' life and saving work, dying on that cross and being raised to life, and being the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And as we will see, and a place amongst his people. Cornelius and his household needed to hear that this Jewish Messiah, who he had heard of, was sent for them as well. That God had spoken to us in these last days by his Son, not by a servant. And with the Son comes the full sovereign grace and authority of God. See, Cornelius had lived a life on the religious fringes and had never been regarded as part of the true, holy community of God. He had been regarded as unclean, unfit for God's presence. Under the Old Covenant, he didn't belong to Israel, though he feared their God. But now a new covenant community, a new household was about to open up for him as the Son invites him in. It is as the gospel is preached, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. This, to the Jewish believers, was staggering. Verse 45 says that they were amazed. Luke refers to them as the circumcised believers. And that's intentional, so that we don't miss the point that acceptance and belonging to the new covenant community, the church, is not a work of the flesh, but a work of God. It is the work of grace and grace alone. The Gentiles are now sharing in the same Pentecost as the Jewish believers had back in chapter 2. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Cornelius and those who heard the word of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ are baptized into Christ, into his body by the Spirit. They belong to Christ's new community. In chapter 15 of Acts, at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter details what has gone on here. This coming together of Jew and Gentile in the Spirit is a result of having heard and believed the gospel, having had their hearts cleansed by God through faith. Cornelius was acceptable to God by faith, which then God bore witness to by giving them the Holy Spirit. Who is acceptable to God? On what basis is anyone able to enter and enjoy a relationship with God and have confidence in the hope of being part of his eternal and glorious plan that he has promised for his people? God alone is the one who makes us acceptable to him. God gives us the gift of faith. And as John Newton wrote, was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed and it is god who cleanses our hearts through faith 
that he has given to us. Cornelius was without a high priest. He was on the fringes. But the gospel has brought him a great high priest under which he is accepted in the true household of God. <coughs> so to conclude, what are we to take from all of this? Anyone who fears God is accepted by God. Period. Therefore, have no confidence in yourself. So when you fall and fail and sin, do not be discouraged. But repent and consider the house in which you are in. You don't have the right clothes, but the host has. And he has given them to you to wear. He has made you clean. Be aware of the real danger of Proverbs 30, verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. See, the true mark of saving faith is to be seen by what it produces in the life of the believer. Arms and prayers. And saving faith is testified to by God through the Spirit. Is the Spirit producing in you that which doesn't come by natural means? Speaking in foreign tongues? Love? Joy? Peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The marks of the Spirit's presence in you. God's grace is a supreme work of charity. And this can lead to joy and thankfulness in the heart of those who accept they have nothing. But there is something in all of us that doesn't like to receive charity. We are not naturally inclined to consider ourselves as needy. We want to justify ourselves. We want to say that there is merit in what we do. That what I do actually counts for something towards our salvation. But don't be fooled. It is by grace and grace alone that we can truly be clean and acceptable to God. Fear God. And rest in the assurance of his sovereign grace. What God has made clean, do not call common.